right, church, I'm going to ask you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. If you don't know who I am, my name is Joel Repick. I'm lead pastor here at Crestmont, and I would love the opportunity to meet with you, especially if you're new, and there's an opportunity today immediately following the service on the other side of the back wall of the sanctuary in what we call the Crestmont Cafe. Uh, the last Sunday of the month, we have newcomer's pizza. It's not a class. It's not a presentation. It's literally just some pizza, and it gives me the opportunity to get to know you. So if you are newer to our church in the last few months, uh, stop and grab a piece of pizza, and I'd love to chat with you for a few minutes and get to know you personally. I know so many of you were with us this last weekend for the church's 100th anniversary, and what a powerful time we had together, didn't we, church? Just celebrating the goodness of God to us. Um, I was so blessed by everything, by our time together Saturday night, by both services on Sunday. It was so good to see uh, so many of you out for that. So praise God. Um, and we are heading into this new season of what God has called us to, and that's really exciting, and I love doing it with all of you. Well, as we look at Matthew 19, we've been saying it for the last few weeks in this sermon series, uh, Jesus is at the place in his life and ministry where he is headed toward the cross. He and the disciples are moving toward Jerusalem. Jesus knows why he's going there. He has said it uh, to his disciples. But all along the way, Jesus can't help but be himself. His identity is so secure in the Father. And so all along the way, even as he's headed toward the cross, he's healing the sick and he's teaching about the kingdom. As a matter of fact, we have said that this is the central theme of all of Jesus' teaching. Jesus teaches us to identify what the kingdom of God looks like to learn to identify what it looks like when God is ruling, to learn to identify what it looks like when God is making what's wrong in the world right again, because that's what's happening in the ministry of Jesus. The kingdom of God is invading a sinful and broken world, and God in his rulership is making what's wrong right. Now, to give you some context for Matthew 19, in Matthew 18, among the things that Jesus teaches on, Jesus has been teaching on relationships, particularly what relationships look like when God is ruling, what relationships look like when God is in charge. He's teaching us to identify um, how we should relate to one another. So he talks about things like forgiveness and resolving conflict. And when we get to Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is teaching on the topic of marriage and particularly a question that he gets about divorce. Now, in a very short amount of time today, I'm going to be covering marriage and divorce and sexuality and issues surrounding identity, uh, singleness, all kinds of stuff. Any one of these topics I could probably preach a whole sermon on, and maybe at some point we should take the time to do that. Today is going to feel like rapid fire through this passage because Jesus covers so much so quick in the passage. Um, but I think that today we can consider what it is that Jesus is uh, saying to us and boil it down to some main things. But I just want to say, I'm going to be unable today to explain every little thing. I'm going to be unable today to qualify every statement that I say. So I would just ask for grace and say, if I, if I didn't say the whole thing, or if I didn't say it to the specificity that you think I should have said it, 
show me grace at the end of today, all right? So I want to say this before we read the passage from Matthew 19. This is a situation in which some of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, who are men, are coming to Jesus and asking about what is permissible in terms of divorcing or sending away their wives who are women. And the background, the cultural context behind this whole passage and really so much of Scripture is the abuse or the mistreatment of women by men. So I want to say at the outset of this passage, I understand that in a room this size with people in it, People have been hurt in both ways. There's probably some men who have been hurt by women. There's women who have been hurt by men. But because the context of this passage is the abuse of women by men, and this is what Jesus is addressing, that's the lens through which I'm going to be talking today. There's other applications, but that's what I'm going to be talking about today. It's not a secret that Jesus and the disciples live in a male-dominated, male-controlled society, and this was true in the Old Testament as well is the New Testament, and really, this is still such a big issue today. You know, in our culture, we like to brag and talk about all of the advances that we've made in terms of, you know, treating people fairly, uh, men and women, but in reality, you can't talk about any major issue that faces the world today without talking about the abuse of women by men in power. Um, it, for instance, it's impossible to talk about poverty globally or here in the United States. It's impossible to talk about poverty before very long you're going to be talking about the mistreatment of women, often at the hands of men, that makes it nearly impossible for them to rise themselves or often their dependent children out of the situation of poverty. So I think you know, this is a radical message in Scripture, but it's radical to us today. But Jesus does something extraordinary. He takes this conversation to a deeper place than just what's right and wrong concerning marriage and divorce. And instead, he backs up the conversation. When this question is asked to him, he backs up the conversation into the place of, of asking what is God's original intent in human relationships and in marriage in particular? What is God's original intent? What was God trying to accomplish? Because in Jesus, the kingdom of God is restoring what has been lost because of sin, right? So when the kingdom of God comes and invades the earth, what's being restored is what was lost. So before Jesus even gets into do's and don'ts, he takes the conversation to the place of what was God's original intent? What was the heart of God in this? Now, a small note before we go any further. I know that we live in a time in which in one generation in our culture, the norms surrounding sexuality and marriage have changed dramatically. I know that many times that has felt threatening to the church and to people who believe the word of God. And I am aware of how difficult these issues can be in our culture, the controversy that they can create, and so on and so forth. But I want to say this at the beginning. Maybe this is the attitude we can adopt as we looked at this passage, that I don't think there's anything more powerful that we, the people of God, can do on these issues than to simply be faithful witnesses of a covenant-keeping God in humility. Quite honestly, I think our culture is tired of us barking at them. 
I think our culture is tired of us having self-righteous attitudes when people can see that the church is struggling with the same issues that the world is. And I think it's time we adopt an attitude of humility. I was thinking of what Paul says to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians when he says, you do love all of God's families. This is a family passage. He's talking about their relationships with each other. He says, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. I really think if we would start minding our own business on these issues and just live faithfully, that we would win the respect of outsiders, oftentimes who themselves have been the victims of a culture uh, that seeks cheap sex and cheap relationships. In the wake of that, there's all of this damage and carnage. And friends, I think people are hungry for a covenant community. I think people are hungry for a place, for a family that can say, we know how to keep covenant relationships. Now, I'm going to cover a lot of things today, so bear with me as we move through this. But first, we're going to read the passage, Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. If you'd stand to your feet in honor of God's word. It says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man gave, give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live life, uh, to choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. You can be seated. Jesus goes on in this passage to teach about children, and we're just not going to have time to get to that this morning. We're going to focus on verses 1 through 12. So I've been asking four questions every time we come to the scripture together. The first is, who is God? And I would suggest to you that the backdrop to this whole passage, the theological backdrop to this whole passage, is that God is a covenant keeper. Now, this is different than saying that God is a God of contract. He's not a God of contract. He's a God of covenant. There's a little bit of a cultural disconnect, a historical disconnect between us and the idea of covenant because almost what we have entirely in our society are not covenants but contracts. In a contract, two parties, two individuals or two groups of people come together and write down on a piece of paper the things that they're going to give each other, right? Services or money or so on and so forth. And, you know, people break contracts all the time. 
It might not be ethical or moral or right, but you walk away from the contract, and as soon as you walk away from the contract, all that happens is the contract dissolves. It doesn't exist anymore. There might be legal repercussions depending on, on what it is, but all that happens is the contract doesn't exist anymore. In the day and age in which Jesus is preaching and teaching and doing his ministry, the concept that would have been known to people was not one of contract, but one of covenant. And covenant is different. Because the two parties who come together in covenant don't just give each other their stuff, their services or their money or whatever. They give themselves to one another. This was true of kings. It was true of political alliances. And it was true of marriage. To enter into a covenant with another person is to give your very self. Now, interestingly, all throughout Scripture, God is revealed as a God of covenant. See, he could have just entered into contract with the human race. You give me your stuff, I'll give you my stuff, right? A lot of humans conceive of religion that way. I give God his stuff, I expect him to give me his stuff, but that's contract, that's not covenant. What God enters into with the human race from the very beginning is something very different, it's covenant. What God is saying is, I want to give my very self to you, my presence to you, not just my stuff. I'm going to give myself to you. And what I want from you is not just your stuff, but your very self. That's what a covenant relationship looks like. Now, covenant relationships were so serious in the ancient world that when a partner broke the covenant, there was only one response, and it was death. This was true in politics, as true as it was in marriage. To break the covenant in the ancient world, in the ancient mind, meant death. This is what scripture teaches about our relationship with God, right? God enters into covenant relationship to break the covenant. The punishment for that is what? Is death. We break the covenant in sin the punishment is death. Now, how did God deal with this out of his love? Because humanity over and over and over again did not keep up their end of the bargain with God, did not keep their side of the covenant. We have failed the covenant again and again and again. So how did God deal with this? Well, he came as a man. His name was Jesus. And this God-man Jesus fulfilled perfectly our end of the covenant. He never broke it. He fulfilled it perfectly. And more than that, when Jesus died on the cross, he took the punishment for us breaking the covenant onto himself. So God, amazingly in his grace, reaches out to humanity in covenant relationship and knowing that we will be unable to keep our end of the bargain, fulfills our end of the bargain, absorbs the punishment for our failure in keeping up our end of the bargain so that we can exist in covenant relationship with him forever. Isn't that amazing? God fulfills both sides of the deal so that we can be in covenant relationship with him forever. Now, if that's who God is, if that's how God relates to us, if he's not the God of contract, but he's the God of covenant, then what does that say about us? Well, it means that my identity, because of grace, is a covenant partner. And I will forever be this for all eternity. I will live out an endless days in eternity as a covenant partner of God because of what Jesus did at the cross. I'm not just going to get God's stuff. I'm going to get God for all of eternity. And God isn't just going to have our stuff. He's going to have us. 
for all of eternity. And this was made possible because of what Jesus did at the cross. So what is God saying to us with this backdrop of covenant? Well, I think this, that if my identity is as a covenant partner, then it means that what will flow out of that is my relationships, including marriage, will reflect the priority of covenant. That is to say that if my identity is as a covenant partner, meaning that God relates to me by his grace, that's what I'm saying, then it means that my relationships are the very place where God's covenant of grace is made manifest. My relationships, my marriage, is the place where the grace of God is displayed. Now, when the Pharisees come to Jesus, they're asking, is it lawful to send away your wife, to divorce your wife for any and every reason? It's likely that they have a particular command of Moses in their mind. In Deuteronomy 24 in the Old Testament, the Old Testament law said this, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and it goes on to explain this procedure of divorce. Probably a debate that the religious leaders are coming to Jesus with is what Moses means when it's written in the law something indecent about her. There were rabbis in Jesus' day that taught that a man had the right to send away his wife for any and every reason because she was no longer beautiful enough. Or because, one rabbi wrote, because the meal didn't taste good enough. Basically, for any reason, you just send the other person away. And of course, in a male-dominated society, this is economically, socially devastating to the woman who's being sent away. Not to mention, if the man falsely accused the woman of adultery, then it meant that this woman would forever be marked in her society as an outsider. It would devastate her for the rest of her life. So when the Old Testament writes this command, Moses actually has in mind the protection of the innocent party. What he's saying, the, the, the thrust of the law is this. Look, if the man is going to send away his wife, what he owes her is a certificate of divorce. That is, what is lawful is that he has to write out that he was the one that made this decision to send her away. Why? Because it frees the woman to remarry. It's saying she is the innocent party. So the thrust of this law was to protect the innocent party, which very often were women in the ancient world. Okay, are you tracking with me? The religious leaders of Jesus' day have taken this and completely twisted its meaning to not protect the innocent party, but instead to abuse people, particularly women. And they're debating this one word. What does it mean when Moses says that this you know, indecent. What does it mean? Because we want to know how free are we to be able to send away our wives for any cause. Well, Jesus actually doesn't directly answer their question. He backs it up by talking about what was God's original intention in marriage because he wants to point out to them what it is that the kingdom of God is restoring. So he says, beginning in verse 4, "'Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female?' And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. He quotes out of Genesis there. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, 
let no man separate. This is a statement of God's original intention in marriage that Jesus says here. First of all, he puts all of this in the context of covenant. God created them. God is the creator. He's in covenant relationship with his people. He created them male and female. This man and this woman in marriage become one flesh. And this ought not be separable. This is the highest ideal of the kingdom of God. This is the intention of God in marriage. These things, that it be a covenant, that it be male and female, that it be one flesh, and that it not be separable. Now, it's safe to say that God intended, from Scripture, that God intended marriage to be many things. We see in Scripture he intended marriage to be an important place of companionship, that he intended marriage and families to be the basic building block of human society, that he intended it to be the place of procreation. But even more than all of that, here's what God's intention was in marriage. He intended marriage relationships to be a picture of the covenant, to be a picture of his covenant relationship with his people. See, God so wanted us to remember how he relates to us. This this isn't contract, it's covenant, that he ordained a special relationship, the marriage relationship in human society, to be the place that displays this covenant again and again and again, to remind us of how it is that God relates to us. This is why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 also quotes out of Genesis. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. He's saying, when I talk about marriage relationships, what marriage relationships are actually pointing to at their best, what the ideal is, is they are pointing to the way Jesus loves his church. They're pointing to the way that God relates to his people. Are you all tracking with me on this? Okay. So now let's get very practical as Jesus begins to get practical in this passage. The question, what are we going to do about it? Well, I would say this. If God is covenant-keeping, and if we are covenant partners, then the first thing we will do is we will be a covenant people who honor the covenant of marriage. This is why it is true, and it comes through in this passage with Jesus, that flippant divorce has no place among God's people. Now, now this is a hard teaching. It's different than what our society tells us because um, at its best, marriage is the place where we can experience joy and as God's kingdom settles in on our marriage, we grow even more into our callings and everything that God has called us to be. That's what marriage is at its best. But many of you know in this room that we don't always experience marriage at its best. Do I have some real people in here? All right. We don't always experience it at its best. Sometimes marriage hurts. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's not, doesn't seem like at all what we signed up for. And I, I just want to say this to us this morning, that when covenant relationship is hurting you, remember this, that the covenant didn't hurt anybody more than Jesus. To keep the covenant... Jesus shed his own blood at the cross. And he was fulfilling our end of the deal, not his. 
when he died on the cross. He was so serious about being in covenant relationship with his people. He was willing to endure pain because of it. It's the love of Jesus that is behind our long suffering in marriage. And so I think this ought to mean, as a covenant people, that we value marriage, even when our culture doesn't. That we walk beside each other in marriage and in each other's marriages toward wholeness. You know, we've often said in this series that the kingdom is here, but it's not here yet. Um, we, we have given this example about how in healing, sometimes the kingdom of God breaks in and heals the sick, and it's a down payment of the total and complete healing that we'll experience in the fullness of the kingdom of God. Well, our covenant relationships with our spouses are pointing forward to that complete picture of covenant wholeness. But in this life, it's a journey, right? And we experience that covenant relationship to varying degrees. There's an already not yet of the kingdom, even in our marriages. And when sometimes we're rejoicing in the already, sometimes we're experiencing the pain of the not yet. But I think when we're experiencing the pain of the not yet, we ought to be a covenant community that fights for our marriages. We ought to be a covenant people that prays for our marriages, that stands with other people, with other couples in their marriages, because something amazing happens. When a covenant people fight for covenant marriage, we hold out these beautiful pictures of the way that God loves people. And the world is hungry for that. You know, I noticed not too long ago, there was this video that got shared on Facebook. It was of this old couple, like in their 80s, and they were doing this swing dance, I think, to like, it got shared. Some of you shared it on Facebook. And this video got viewed like some crazy amount of time, like millions of times on Facebook. And when you think about it, it really is surprising that a video like that is so appealing in the day in which we live. You know, in, an, in, in a sexually impulsive, porn-saturated society, it's surprising, youth-worshipping society, it's surprising that a video like that gets shared so much. And I took time to read the comments, or something like 10,000 comments or something on this video. And you know what you can see in it? Even if people don't know anything about God, even if they haven't lived their lives according to his commands, people were made for the covenant. And they're hungry for covenant relationship. And they're burnt out on relationships of contract, even relationships of contract that have involved sex or have involved exciting feelings or whatever. In the end, it gets empty because it's just all contract. It's what you can give me and what I can give you. People are hungry for something deeper. And I think we have an opportunity in our culture. It would be amazing if instead of being afraid and judgmental, if we would just hold out in quiet godliness examples of covenant relationship in our midst. And I think it's tied to our mission. I think when people see us love one another, they begin to see the love of God. So first of all, I think that if we're covenant people, we'll honor the covenant of marriage in our midst. And, I, and seriously, church, as, you, as your pastor, I take that seriously. This is a big deal about who God has called us to be. But secondly... If God is a covenant-keeping God and we are covenant partners as a result of his grace, we will refuse to allow relationships, including marriage, to be a place of abuse and domination. Now, follow what I'm saying here. 
the Pharisees counter back to Jesus' explanation about God's original intention in marriage by asking, why then did the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 24 permit divorce? And Jesus answers by saying in verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your, your wives. But what Jesus is saying is, look, there's an ideal, and the ideal is the ideal. It doesn't move. But God took into account the sinfulness of people. See, when marriage relationships, which are supposed to be this beautiful place of experiencing the covenant and God's grace in the covenant, when that covenant is broken in some terrible way and the marriage ends in divorce, it is always less than God's ideal. It always grieves the heart of God. But God does permit it. Why? Because just like in the Old Testament, God is concerned for the protection of the innocent party. See, in the Old Testament, God understands, by the way, he's real with the human condition. He understands that sometimes, no, neither partner are ever perfect in marriage, but he understands that sometimes there is an innocent party that did not break the covenant. And there's a guilty party that did break the covenant of marriage. In these instances, Jesus is not saying that divorce has to happen, but he is saying it's permissible. Why? To protect the innocent party. See, in the Old Testament, God's concern was that people, particularly men, were not allowed to just flippantly divorce their wives without taking responsibility because that did not protect the innocent party. So God made a law. The husband must write out a certificate of divorce. He must own his decision if he's going to send this woman away so that she is protected and can rebuild her life after. In this passage, what Jesus is saying is, look, if somebody breaks the covenant in a terrible way, here he mentions sexual immorality, if they break the covenant in a terrible way, they are permitted to walk away from the marriage instead of staying in it as a victim of abuse. Now, Jesus here says that, that a reason that can be given for this divorce is sexual immorality. He uses the Greek word porneia, which is where we get the English word pornography. It's a broad word that covers a number of different kinds of sexual immorality. Paul says to the church in Corinth in another place that if one spouse deserts the other spouse, just deserts them, that that person is not guilty either because one person has deserted the covenant. Now, I could spend the rest of the sermon getting like real nitpicky on this. And, and just like the Pharisees got nitpicky with Jesus about the word indecent and what does that mean and what doesn't mean and when is it particular, we could do that with Jesus' teaching here. And I'm not saying we shouldn't study that, but I just want to say this. And I've already said that there's no place for flippant divorce among God's people, but I just want to say this. I've known too many Christians and too many churches who take Jesus is teaching here in Matthew 19 and do the very thing that, that is opposite of what this passage was intended to do. They use this passage to shame people, particularly women, into staying in abusive relationships. And listen, they do it out of a desire to be a covenant-honoring people. Well, we take marriage seriously. Marriage is holy. We want to be a covenant-honoring people. I want to suggest to you that we ought to take marriage so seriously that if the marriage relationship becomes the place where a person is getting abused in the worst kinds of ways over and over again, we ought to say, not on our watch, because we're a covenant people. 
Because we're a covenant people. We take covenant too seriously. To hold over people's heads um, the word of God in a self-righteous, judgmental way. To use this to shame people. We take covenant too seriously. So listen, we'll fight for marriages, all that. I believe that. But we also ought to be a people who protects innocent parties. I think that means, and this goes for adults as well as children, that when abuse victims come forward and tell, tell us what's happening in the secret places of their home, that we believe them. That we believe them. That if laws have been broken, we report them. Because this is the grace of God. He has given power and authority to government at its best. Government is instituted by God to protect the weak from the oppressor. So we don't shy away from that. And I think we ought to be a place where men are held accountable and women can get help. See what I'm saying? Why? Because we're a covenant-honoring people. Because the purpose of the relationship isn't abuse or domination. The purpose of the relationship is covenant. Jesus, among the many things that he's teaching in this passage, he in his mercy is teaching the protection of the innocent party. And I think we fall short of this teaching and the Old Testament teaching when we don't protect innocent parties in our midst. Lastly, if God is a covenant keeper, and if we are covenant partners, we will honor marriage, fight for marriages, we'll refuse to allow marriage relationships or other relationships to be places of abuse and domination. And we will recognize that while marriage is a picture of the covenant, sex and even marriage are not our identity. I want to take us into the last part of this passage, beginning in verse 11, Jesus' teaching on eunuchs. It's interesting. The disciples hear Jesus' teaching on marriage and they hear Jesus saying they're not allowed to flippantly send away their wives. And so they come to Jesus and say, well, Jesus, if you're going to make it like that, if we're not going to be able to just control you know, the women in our lives, it sounds like we shouldn't even marry. You know? And Jesus goes on. He responds to them with this teaching on eunuchs. You know what's interesting about these next few verses I'm about to unfold for you? There's only one commentary on my shelf that even deals with these verses. There's, and it's very brief. And it's because this teaching of Jesus seems strange to his hearers back then, and it seems strange to many religious people now. But I think there's some powerful stuff in here about what it means for us to be a covenant community. You see, marriage is a God-ordained place where the covenant relationship that he has with his people is manifested and shown to the world. God ordained marriage to be that way, and he ordained it to be a certain way. And Jesus outlines that in these passages. But, as it turns out, the covenant family has the capacity to welcome to itself even those who don't experience marriage. And I think we really miss some of the mercy in Jesus' teaching when we ignore these passages. I've, I keep saying it, but you can tell in Scripture what is your identity because it is forever. Now, Jesus seems to say elsewhere in the Gospels that marriage is not forever. It's a temporary assignment that we experience in this life. God ordained with the boundaries that God has put around it to put on display his covenant with us. But it is not forever. 
you know, we won't experience it in eternity, at least not in any way that we experience it here. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. But here's the truth. If you put your identity in your marriage, you actually doom your marriage from the beginning. If you put your identity in that other person, it's a death sentence on that relationship. Why? Because you're going to be using that person to try to get your own need for identity met. But listen, marriage can be a very identity-affirming place. You know, when the marriage is in a good place and it's God-honoring, it can be the place that our partner champions our identity and we champion their identity. It can be the place where God brings together two identities in partnership and union and they can accomplish great things for God together and there's a lot of joy in that. But it's also true that our identity is in the covenant-keeping God, not in the partner that we've made a covenant with. And, and when we recognize this, when we recognize our identity is in this covenant-keeping God, it frees us to love like a covenant partner, even when we're not getting the things that we feel like we should get. So Jesus drives this point home that the covenant family is larger than the experience of marriage in the kingdom, by saying this radical stuff about eunuchs. Now, here's the reality. You, you know what eunuchs are. It's a man who's been castrated. And in the Old Testament teaching, uh, these individuals were utter outsiders, banned from religious life, not able to participate. And so it would have hit the Jesus's, you know, the people he's teaching to, it would have hit their ears as so radical that he's even using eunuchs as a picture to get across the point that he's trying to get across. But he says in verse 11, not everyone can receive this teaching. He's saying marriage isn't for everyone, but only for those to whom it is given. There's eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He talks about these other groups of people. And he says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. It's incredibly inclusive language from Jesus. So first of all, he says, those who cannot, he talks about those who are born eunuchs. And I would suggest to you that these are those who cannot fit the pattern of marriage because of something related to birth. It's been a phenomena all throughout human history. It was in the ancient world. It still is today. That some people, it's a very small number of people, are born with unformed genitalia. It makes it difficult for them to fit into the traditional gender roles that society gives them. The church is very often separated from this group of people because of where political lines have been drawn in our society. We often have no relationship with people like this. But Jesus, in an incredible display of compassion, says, look, if there's something related to your birth that makes it hard for you to fit into this pattern of of uh, male and female in marriage, there is room for you in the kingdom. I would add this. I would say that this category of people includes those who struggle physically or psychologically with gender identity issues or people who from the earliest memories of sexual impulse have felt attracted to the same sex. Now listen, I know now I'm treading into very controversial territory. And you may not agree with everything I say, but this is my heart to you. I want to give this to you. 
I don't see anywhere in this passage or anywhere else in Scripture that Jesus moves the lines on God's original intention with marriage, which is that it's a covenant relationship between a man and a woman, inseparable, the two become one flesh. And that in itself could be a, probably a whole other sermon that I could preach. And I'm aware we live in a day in which there are many theological and political arguments out there that cover all sides of this issue. I'm read up on those, on those um, you know, positions as well. And yet, church, I've been, I've been commissioned to preach the word of God before you, and I, I understand the other side of these arguments. I don't see anywhere where the lines on what God intended marriage to be are anything different than what I've described to you today. And yet, I think, hear the heart of Jesus in this, I think very often the church is terribly unimaginative about what it means for us to be a covenant people and how someone doesn't have to be married to experience the blessings of the covenant because we can, we can share with one another the covenant that God has given to us. And, you know, I, over the years, I've just had the opportunity to speak to people who have shared with me their love for God and their same-sex attraction from the, earliest, from the earliest days. And listen, church, I just want to tell you, I think what Jesus is saying here, if there's something from birth that has made the traditional way this plays out difficult for you, there's room for you in the kingdom. The lines from marriage haven't changed, but there's room for you in the kingdom of God. Guess what, church? Some of those individuals are already in our midst. And one of the most beautiful things about Crestmont, it's not our bumper sticker thing, but one of our most beautiful things about Crestmont is the way that this church has welcomed and loved and made a home for people who feel like they don't fit because they're sexual outsiders, like eunuchs were in Jesus' day. It's a beautiful thing. So many of you have been very protective of people who find themselves in this place. I love it. I value it. I think it's who we're supposed to be as the people of God. Secondly, Jesus says those who cannot fit the pattern of marriage, I think because of life circumstances, are made eunuchs by men. So he talks about these, how there were some people in Jesus' day who worked in the courts of, uh, of religious, I'm sorry, of political leaders, and it was the practice of kings in the ancient world to castrate their male nobles and officials so that they didn't have to worry about those dudes coming after their wives, right? That's an effective way to do it. And, and Jesus is saying, people who are in that boat, there's also a place for them in the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, do you remember later on in the book of Acts, one of those eunuchs who served in the court of Candace, queen of Ethiopia, ran into a deacon in the early church named Philip who was full of the Holy Spirit. And Philip not only shared the gospel with him, but baptized him and made him part of the family. Radical in Jesus' day. And so I think for people who today find vocational obstacles to marriage or have just had trouble identifying a marriage partner, in Jesus' day, a lot of times, um, you know, marriages were arranged. We live in a day where people are largely responsible to find their own person. It can be really hard and stressful and difficult and take a long time. Or those with physical or mental health issues that make marriage impossible or inadvisable. Guess what? You don't need to be married to experience the blessings of the covenant. That's what Jesus is saying. 
Jesus understands the pain that's in that place. And then lastly, he says, those who choose not to get married for the sake of following Jesus, who choose to live like eunuchs. You know, I just, I realize I've gone over, there's often a bias against single people in the church. You know this, right? Can we just talk real? Particularly when it comes to leadership and ministry. I've been in rooms, you know, over the years where ministry leaders are talking about how someone would be so gifted and such a good leader if only they were married. Listen, I think that there are those who don't want to get married and choose to experience the covenant directly from Jesus himself, right? The Apostle Paul was one of these individuals. Um, And I think we ought to be able to celebrate the singleness of people in the church and find creative ways for their inclusion. And speaking of creative ways, back to that, that first one about those born eunuchs. I have an acquaintance. He's not a friend, but just an acquaintance. Um, I had lunch with him once, and he would tell me that from his earliest memories, he remembered being attracted to the same sex, not the opposite sex. And he also believes that the lines that Jesus places here around marriage are immovable and that the church shouldn't have the authority to change those. And so what that has meant for him is embracing his singleness as a gift where God can display his grace um, and I'll tell you what, I feel for him because he comes around churches that are, you know, want to fight for, for marriage, and he often finds that he's not accepted there. And, and on the other side of the political divide, he often finds he's not accepted there. But you know what he's done in his church? He's moved in with a family that has welcomed him as part of the family. He's part of the family. He helps raise the kids. He's involved in every aspect of their lives. And it might not be the traditional way to display God's covenant love, but it's a beautiful way and a hope-filled way to display the covenant. So I think, you know, I think rather than like ill-advised and ill-timed suggestions to our single folks about someone who might be good for them, all this ridiculous, corny stuff that church people do, I think we ought to say to our single folks, look, if you want to be married, if that's a desire of your heart, we'll stand with you in it and we'll pray for it. But if you think for right now you've been in this this place of singleness and that's where God has you, we're going to stand with you in that as well. As a matter of fact, if the worship team could come forward, as a matter of fact, our district superintendent, uh, Dave Noggle, when we became a greenhouse church, we put a number of single folks on our church staff. And I told him, I said, Dave, I want to tell you something that's in my heart. I want to be a place that can launch married couples into ministry, but can launch single folk into ministry as well. And particularly, I'm concerned for our single women who often find barrier after barrier after barrier in the church to gospel ministry because no one takes them seriously until they find a man. It's ridiculous. And that's not the heart of Jesus in this passage. You tracking with me? Okay. This is the very last thing I want to say. We're a covenant people. We're going to fight for marriages. We're going to resist abuse. We're going to embrace single people. We're going to embrace people, you know, who often aren't accepted in other places of society. But I also think this, to be a covenant people fundamentally means that we are a people of grace, right? If we had broken the covenant 
and there was a one strike in your out policy, none of us would have made it, right? But our story, as the covenant people of God, our story is a story of grace. Uh, We didn't just mess up once. We messed up over and over and over again. And God kept pursuing us with his love and with his grace. So I just want to end by saying this. If you've messed up, and probably many of you have, there is a covenant-keeping God who extends his grace to you today. You don't hear anything else I said today. Hear this. There is a covenant-keeping God who extends his grace to you today. And by God's grace, there is a covenant community here at Crestmont that will walk with you towards healing and wholeness. At at its ideal, relationships and marriage is supposed to be the place where the covenant's on display. But what we often experience is the feeling of being brokenhearted again and again and again. And I just want to say to you, if you're divorced, God's not done with you yet, friend. God has plans for you. Marriage is the safe place that God has sanctioned us to interact with our spouse sexually. See, the act of sexual intercourse is so powerful, such a fully giving of ourselves to another person that God wants the context of that to be covenant relationship, not some cheap contractual thing. But guess what? You've messed up had sex outside of marriage there's a God who loves you he loves you and he's a covenant keeper even when we've broken the covenant you find yourself caught in the secrecy of sexual addiction you need to know there's hope God loves you he's a covenant keeper You're here today and you think, boy, these issues of gender identity and same-sex attraction have been difficult for me. I'm sorry there's so much controversy surrounding your life, both in the culture and in the church, but hear this. We love you. You are welcome here. And there's a covenant-keeping God and hopefully a covenant community that will walk with you to minister his grace to you again and again. Are you hearing the heart of this? 